About 12 years ago when I came here to Great Oaks, one of the things that we talked about uh, that was important for us to understand is what our purpose is as a church. And it was very clear early on that our purpose here in this community and around the world is to is to reach people for Christ. We talk about it. We love God, love people, and we're to help people take their next step towards God. And that's been something we talk about all the time. We also realized we had a great opportunity not only reaching people here in this community, which we continue to do, but, uh, but also reaching people in other parts of the world. And so we begin the process of partnering with uh, having strategic partnerships with, um, with uh, places and other places and other parts of the world. Uh, and also uh, we're looking at partnerships regionally to begin the process of planting churches in different places as well. We understand that a, a church that's, that's growing and mature-wise is, is a church that reaches other people. And so uh, part of the deal in doing so is we realize that God's given us all kind of opportunities recently to do that. And one of the things that, uh, there's two things we need uh, if we're going to do those things and, re- and to do the things well that we, God wants us to do. And uh, we need two things. We need people, uh, the right kind of leaders, and we also need resources. And um, you, you guys have been a really great giving church for many years. And, and uh, matter of fact, uh, uh, it's been a great year for that as well. But at the same time, we realize that one of the things that's held us back a little bit from doing some new things that God has wanted us to do is the fact that we've had uh, a, a mortgage on our property. Uh, we've had, uh, been paying it off for many years. Matter of fact, it's about 25% of our average budget giving goes toward that. And um, that's about $200,000 a year approximately that goes toward just toward paying off debt and we realize that the sooner we pay that off the sooner that we can free up those resources that's just regular giving resources to do this planting churches here regionally globally but also uh, enlarging and and growing uh, student ministries children's ministries and ministries to adults here locally as well and there's all kind of things involved with that so um, most of you uh, that are regular attenders or members that you're on our mailing list um, received a letter from me uh, probably th- Friday or Saturday, just kind of giving you an update on what we call Invest 2014. Invest 2014 was an uh, effort by our leaders to kind of make us aware of where we are and then also to help us to understand that we, the sooner we pay this debt off, uh, that we can be, and be debt-free, that it frees up resources, not so much just to have more money, but to do more ministry. And so that's what we've been focusing on. So we challenge you in that, and we'll be talking more about that along the way for the last six months of this year. The, the, it was kind of to tell you where we were and to tell you where we need to be. And, uh, and so uh, uh, to challenge you to kind of finish well for the remainder of the year in regard to that, because it is uh, hugely important that, uh, man, we got all kind of opportunities out there to plant churches uh, in different places. And, um, and God's opening some doors there. So just be in prayer for that about what your part in that would be. It's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. And we're all part of the family of God here. And so just encourage you along the way with that as well. Okay. Um, we're in Ephesians. You didn't know that, did you? No. Okay. If you've been here at all this summer, the last, couple, the last month or so, uh, we've been talking about, this is about the fifth or sixth week, I can't remember exactly, in the book of Ephesians. And um, we're talking, going through the summer of, of, of working our way through the book of Ephesians. So far, I've been able to kind of cover the whole, uh, all the sections in chapter 1 and 2. Today, I'm going, to, I'm going to skip over one section because we only have so many weeks and we had to figure out where, how to fit things in. But uh, to let you know where we are, we're in chapter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to that or your iPad or your, I, or your phone or your Android or whatever it is you, you read Scripture on, uh, that you can do that as well. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, today I'm actually going to skip over a section at the beginning, but it's kind of interesting because I was reading chapter 3 back a few weeks ago in prepping for this message, and I realized something. Uh, Paul has the same problem that many of us do. 
He's very distractible. None of you have that problem, right? No, never have a problem being distractible. Um, I mean that by, if you read chapter 3, you'll read the first verse, and it seems like Paul has this thought. He starts to pray, you know, so for this reason, I, and then he starts saying something. Then he just kind of like stops in mid-thought and says, oh, by the way, guys, this is something you need to know. And then in verse 14, he comes back to this first thought. He almost repeats himself in verse 1 and gets back to what we're going to talk about today, the prayer that Paul prays there and teaches us some things about prayer and what we need to be praying for and what prayer is all about, really. So we're going to focus on that part, verses 14 through 21 today. But in that first part that I'm skipping over, just to let you know what it's about, uh, it's basically where Paul talks about in verses 2 through 13. He talks about what he calls the mystery. He keeps talking about this, the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ. And what he's talking about there is something we've actually already talked about a lot in the first uh, four weeks of the series. And that's about this. The mystery is this, that God now, and he's talking to the, to the Christians there, he said in Ephesus, he said, God now has done something that he hasn't done in history. He's now opened the gospel to everyone, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And not only that, the mystery is that not only are they going to have two groups of people who can come to Christ, which means everybody has opportunity to come to Christ, but now those two groups can be joined together, and that was just totally foreign to them. That's fine that Gentiles come to Christ, but just keep them over there. Let them do their own thing, you know. But now they're going to be all in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. And so he talks about this mystery there in verses 2 through 13. You can read that, understand what that is. It's kind of a rehashing before he gets into this prayer that he talks about in verses 14 through 21. And it's really interesting if you look at the book of Ephesians that roughly half of the book is prayer. It's not prayers necessarily. There is a couple of prayers, but it's prayer requests, prayer reports, and they're woven through the entire book of, uh, of Ephesians. And the big idea is that there's no such thing as a faithful Christian church without a, a, a praying Christian people. And that prayer is what sustains the forward progress of the health, the growth, and the life of the church. So Paul's basically saying, I'm praying all the time for you guys. And so we can learn some things from this today. And so today in your outline, if you're the people that likes to take notes, we have an outline, and there's six blocks to fill in. It all starts with prayer is, prayer is, prayer is, prayer is. And I'll tell you up front, and I was going to see if everybody figured this out by their end, it actually will spell out, it's an acrostic, all the words will spell out prayer, Okay. It kind of worked. I had to make one fit, but other the rest of them are really good. Okay. And so, uh, <laughs> but it's helpful to remember these things. Okay. Okay. So what does Paul say here? We'll start, we'll start with verse uh, 14, but let's talk about this. Number one, Paul says this about prayer. Prayer is personal. Prayer is personal. As he pray, as he talks about the church, he says this in verse 14. He says, for this reason, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. He kneels before the Father. So Paul's saying this, I'm praying. It's a personal thing. I'm getting, uh, you know, I'm getting before God. You know, people can, you don't have to kneel to pray, but here he does. He, people, you can sit, you can stand. Sometimes you can lie in bed. You can drive in your car, just don't close your eyes. Um, you know, whatever you do, you can pray in very well. But Paul finds himself here kneeling. And kneeling in prayer was fa actually fairly uncommon in the Bible. If you look at most of the time, the Jewish people in particular would find themselves worshiping God. And what they do, they'd be lifting their hands and standing up, reaching out to God is what they would do most of the time there in prayer. So this was fairly uh, uh, un un um, unnatural or uncommon in the Bible for Paul too. But it's something that I think that's important for us to understand. He was trying to teach, I think, his people. He said, I'm kneeling. He writes this down, I'm kneeling. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He said, it's very personal what I'm about to do. And it's kind of like this. This, this thing of kneeling is what? Kneeling is kind of an act of surrender. Um, 
Now, I've watched TV, and you probably have too, in movies, you know, when people are in war and they get caught, captured, what do they usually make them do? Get on the ground, kneel down. On TV, I don't know if this happens, happens in reality, but when a criminal gets caught on the street, well, they do. They either put them kneel, kneel down or face down. You know, they do that kind of thing. And what it does is an act of surrender. And here for the person who is in Christ and praying, it's an act of humility. It shows the disposition of the heart uh, through the direction of the body. But you can pray any way you want to, standing up, sitting down. But Paul here is modeling this for us. And what he's saying also in this, that prayer is personal, um, we have to understand a couple of things. Number one is this. So often people say, well, I pray, I pray and my prayers are never answered. Wrong. Wrong. God always hears and answers. He says in Scripture, he always hears and answers our prayers. But the issue is sometimes that there's, there's three answers. Yes, no, and later. Okay? And sometimes we think he's not answering because he's saying no. And the problem is that sometimes we, we think that, that he doesn't answer, but he does. Because prayer is always something that God is connected with. Now, some things that I think we need to understand about prayer in this part as well is that some things that happen in prayers, number one, I think prayer primarily is to change us. I don't think so much that it's always primarily to get God to do something. Sometimes prayer is taking, is talking to God so that we will, that our will aligns with God's will. That's why sometimes in the Bible we see prayers, things like, well, he teaches us to pray for our enemies. Why? So our enemies will be changed? No, so our heart toward our enemies will change. And we'll have a different attitude and, and, and actually become the possibility of being a peacemaker with them. That we won't be embittered toward them. That we'll still have love and affection toward them, even though they're, they're people that they are enemies. The prayer isn't, there is not necessarily just to change your enemy, but it's to change our attitude toward our enemy. So prayers sometimes uh, change us. And I think that's the majority of time God's going to, prayer changes who, how we think and who we are. But, number two, sometimes prayer does cause God to act. We see in Scripture from time to time where he will hear and the love will respond and he will act. And so sometimes, yes, prayer is to have God respond and to act. But I think that's rare. I think it's more often that God changes who we are. Some other things about prayer, too, that how important and personal it is, is prayer is not grumbling. Prayer is not grumbling. Okay, we can grumble. Any of you, gr don't raise your hand. Uh, you know, gr we grumble, don't we? I mean, I grumble sometimes. And grumbling is, is when we're unhappy and we're just, just kind of sorted out by talking about it. That's what we say. And, and I've certainly been guilty of this. If anybody had a reason to grumble, it would have been the Apostle Paul because of his situation. I talked about this already in this series. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? He was in prison. And this wasn't his house imprisonment. This was the prison where he was kind of like in a hole in the ground. Okay, literally here. And so Paul, he's in jail again. But you know what is it we find him doing? He's not grumbling. He's praying. He's praying. And so the key is this. Paul's telling us this, this personal relationship with God changes us so much that when we hit the difficult circumstances in life, a few, and few of us will hit circumstances as difficult as Paul was in, we can either be praying or we can be grumbling. Grumbling is where we complain and our attitude is sour. And prayers where we're talking about the exact same things, but we're talking to God about them and working them out in relationship with him. And it's not where we just pretend that everything's okay, but it's, you can be honest with God about this as well. So that's what's happening here. Paul's been in his jail cell talking through the circumstances with the Lord, working it out with the Lord, and then he writes this letter to the church, this, this letter to the Ephesians, which actually was circulated to other places as well. He allows others to, others to get a window into where his heart is in regards to this prayer with the Lord. So the question, I guess, in a sense, is this. Who do you talk to first when you go through something? Who do you talk to first? Do you, do you first talk to your buddy? 
No, you talked to, he's, Paul's saying here, the first person I talked to, before I even write this letter and send it out to you, is I've already been praying to God. I've been connecting with God. Also, prayer, he says, um, it keeps us from gossiping. It keeps us from gossiping. I don't know if you knew that was. Gossip is when you talk about someone rather than to them. And we don't do that. You know, we never do that. Uh, now we, we got this thing where we do it on Facebook. You know, I mean, like, oh my gosh, folks, don't ever do that. That's about as dumb as you can get. You know, now everybody in the world knows about your gossiping. Okay? Don't do that. You may be frustrated. You may not know what to say or do. Or you may be annoyed. Let God be your lightning rod in prayer. Because God will change your attitude in your heart. When you read the Psalms, and I love the Psalms in the Old Testament, the Psalms are in large part about prayer. There's a lot here that Paul could be very angry and frustrated about. He can't be with his church. He's serving. I mean, he's, they're in Ephesus. He's in Rome in prison. He's serving Jesus. He's not broken the law. He's being punished again. This is not the first time he's been there. He could die in prison for all he knows. He's lonely, broken. He's an older man now. Uh, he's in prison again, facing potential death just because of the hardness of his life. But in prayer, he's grounded, and he's grounded, and he's, and he's, and he's dealing with it, and his attitude is not one of bitterness are complaining. So first of all, prayer is personal. He says, I bow my knees. He says, I'm praying. I'm praying all the time. I'm praying a lot. I'm surrendered to God and I'm talking it through and I'm praying for you. Number one, prayer is um, personal. Number two, he says, it's prayer is relational. Prayer is relational. Verses 14 and 15, going back to the beginning of 14 and, and tagging on 15, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, we've already read that, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, why in the world does he say that? Two things. There's, he mentions two things here. He says, I kneel before the Father, and he talks about a family. So there's two things, a family and a father. There's a family and a father. And the family is whom? The family is the church. He's talking about the family of the church. I really need you to understand this, Great Oaks. We're a family. Okay? We're not a business. What happens sometimes, particularly in the Western world, is that church is viewed as a purveyor of goods, or religious goods and services. And people treat the church like it's a business, and they become customers, and customers and critics and complainers. We're not a business, we're a family. And when, and when you're a family, what do you do? You encourage one another, you pray for one another. The people you probably prayed for recently has been your family. I mean, how many of you prayed for your grocery store this week? I mean, that's foolish, isn't it? You know, I mean, dear God, you know, I love my grocery store. I pray for all the vegetables and the fruits. You know, and the people that go to the grocery store, and Laura pray for the staff, and they would love one another, they would work hard and long, and, and I pray that they would be unified in their mission to bring us tasty food and snacks. Have you ever done that? No. Why? Because it's a business. You don't pray for businesses. You know, you don't do that. The church isn't a business. The church is a family. So you should pray for your family. You know, I mean, literally this week, I, you know, I prayed many times for my kids, my wife, my dad, my mom, my extended family. And I prayed for many of you because you're part of our family. That's what the church is, Paul is saying here. He says, not only as a father, but as a family, it's a family as well. See, we tend to pray for the people we love the most, right? You do. Because they're family, and church is family. Be praying for our family. Be praying for the whole family. 
Be praying for more people to join the family. Be praying for the strength, the health, the well-being of our family. And I tell you this because if you pray for the church, you'll see the church as a family. And if you don't pray for the church, you'll see the church as a business. And what happens in a consumer relationship, a transactional relationship, is when you're always, you're always trying to get the most by giving the least. That's business. But in the family, family's not like that. Family is where you give generously so that the whole family would be blessed. So I really need you to understand, when he uses the language of family, it's really important we all see our church that way because that's what the Bible talks about. And he also uses the term father. He says there's a father as well. You know, it's, it's a family. It's all held together, he says, by the father. Now let me unpack this, and this is one of the most important parts of the message today, so if you want to zone out anytime else, don't do it now, okay? The most important thing I'll ever tell you on prayer is that God is your Father. If you understand that God is your Father, prayer makes a lot of sense, and prayer becomes very easy for you. I've heard many people say, well, I just can't pray, I don't know what to say. Do you know how to talk to your Father? Some of you are going like, that's not easy either. Well, no, I'm not talking. I, you know, most of us don't have any problem talking to our Father, okay? If you don't understand that God is your Father, though, prayer becomes complicated and difficult in a way that is, quite frankly, it shouldn't. I remember when I was a young Christian, when I was just a teenager, going to a Bible study. And I grew up in a church, and it wasn't a liturgical church or anything, which means that we have a lot of liturgies when you have a lot of things that are repeated. And you might have, some of you may have grown up in that tradition where you have, you learn the prayers you learned were these prayers from dead people. You know, you, you quoted, memorized prayers of dead people. And that's great, you know, but I mean like mealtime prayers or prayers of contrition or prayers of this or prayers of that. And the thing is you learn those things, but that's not what the kind of prayer it talks about in scripture. In scripture, what it talks about, it says, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I remember going to a Bible study when I was a young Christian and they were all praying and, um, and they were all talking to God, and I didn't know how to do that. I'd never heard anybody pray conversationally. And I never heard people just talk to God like he was alive and cared. Because I didn't see the relationship as a, a father-child relationship. And then something happened. God in his grace allowed me to become a dad. And as soon as my daughter Carol was born 30, over 31 years ago, the whole world looked different to me. To be totally honest with you, I can still remember holding my firstborn child and just thinking, wow, I'm a dad. You know, I've always thought this would be cool, but now I am. And, and, and I don't know, you know, and I begin to think, well, you know, that's, that's the kind of relationship God has with me. Father-child relationship. And now I understand it more clearly. I know what this feels like. God's committed to me like a dad's committed to his kids. And if that's true, it's pretty amazing because I know how much I love Kara and Keith, my two kids. See, God's a father, so when we pray, we're talking to our daddy. So here's the big idea. If you get to know your dad, talking to him is not going to be hard. Talking to him is not going to be hard. You're, you're not going to worry about how you talk to God. I mean, my kids, when they talk to me, do not sit down and practice a re repetitive type thing. Dear father, who art in heaven... Well, no, he wouldn't say that anyway. But, uh, you know, they don't have to do this. They don't have an outline when they come. They just come to simply come to me and say, hey, Dad. And then we have a conversation. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, he said, he's your father. See, God's a father who loves his kids. And as I read the Old Testament, I found about a dozen times only that God is referred to as father. But it's always nationally. But then when Jesus comes along, everything changes for some 60 times in the four Gospels we hear him refer to God as Father. And it's not just Father in a formal way, it's Father in a personal way. Many times the Greek actually is the word can be translated Daddy. 
And the result is that as Jesus talks to God as father, he actually uses the word dad or daddy. When my kids were younger, much younger, they called me daddy. It was very loving, very affectionate. Jesus said, pray like that. So if you want to understand prayer, don't look at religious devout people, okay? I mean, I, years ago when I first learned about prayer, I, th- I started reading about these people that were like prayer warriors, you know, and the guys that, and, and they would, uh, and some of the ones in the books, the ones that get, oh, this guy got up at 4 a.m. in the morning and prayed for three hours. This other guy had hardwood floors and his knees, he was on his knees so much he wore ruts in the hardwood floors. I'm going like, boy, I, do I really, I just really don't do prayer very well. Because I thought it was all about that. If you want to know what the kind of prayer that Paul's talking about, that Jesus had with his father, look at a little kid who has a great relationship with her father. That's the kind of thing that God wants us to understand when we pray. So when Jesus, when he asked, how should we pray? He said, pray like this. Our father, our dad, our daddy, who is in heaven. And here Paul is echoing the Lord Jesus, reminding us that God is our father. Now, some of you, now, I have to say this really quickly, but some of you, you're going to struggle with this because you had a bad dad. You had tons of, tons of father wounds. You do. We talked about this in the men's fraternity back two or three years ago. For the first time in the nation's history, we have a fatherless epidemic going on in our world, especially in America. 40% of kids tonight go to bed without a father. For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of births to women 30 and under out of wedlock, meaning the kids doesn't have a dad, and probably never will. And so this idea of fatherhood is, is really, it's really struggling. But don't start there. Don't start with your earthly. Start with God and what the Bible reveals about God, and then judge your earthly father by your heavenly father, but don't assume that there's a correlation necessary between the two. But those of you who don't have a dad or a good dad, the Bible says and that God is, quote, a father to the fatherless. See, that's your identity. You all got a great dad. We all have a great dad. He's a perfect dad. And when we pray, Paul says, pray to him like as our daddy. P-R-A. Prayer is asking. Prayer is asking. In addition, he goes on to say that prayer is asking. He goes on to make a request. So it's okay to make requests to God. Now, once again, sometimes he'll answer yes. Sometimes he'll answer no. And sometimes he'll say later. This is what he says in verses 16 and 17. He says, I pray this. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, here's the big idea. God is independent. He doesn't need anyone or anything. We are dependent. We need God for everything. God doesn't need you. He wants you and he loves you. And that's even better. It's like a family that adopts a child. They don't need the child. They want the child. They love the child. God's a dad like that. God isn't looking to take from us. He doesn't need anything from us. God's looking to give us because we need. So when we bring our request to God, it's all right. We can ask for help. Here Paul is praying for the people of God that they would have the power of the Holy Spirit working in them for something specific here. He says that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Now, many, many of you, I mean, you might have caught this, but who is this letter to? The Ephesian church. These were already Christians. These were already followers. And you're going like, well, I thought already Christ already was in them. Because when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit's in you, right? That's what the Bible says. So what's he talking about here? 
here. What's, why does he pray for them if they're already believers? Why does he pray for them to dwell, that Christ may dwell by faith in their hearts? Well, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. There's a difference between a hotel and a home, right? How many of you have ever checked into a hotel and thought, well, I've got to go to Home Depot right away? Because, because, you know, I'm going to paint this wall, I'm going to change the blinds, the sink is dripping, so I need to pick up some parts. Uh, you know, where I, while I'm at it, the carpet's dirty, I think I'll clean it. No, no, if any of you ever gone to a hotel and done that? If you are, you're sick. Okay. You may have thought that, but you never did it. Because why? Because you're not going to stay there. It's a temporary residence. It's like, okay, I'm going to be in and out in a couple of days, maybe, maybe, a, you know, a few days at the most. Uh, you know, I can deal with it while I'm here. That's how we treat a hotel. But a home is a different story. What happens when you buy a home? For those of you who have bought a home, you buy it, what do you do? You start working on it. I don't care how new it is, right? You start working on it. You, you, you start, you notice that, you start working, you're, we're going to paint this room, and then when you paint that room, you're going like, oh man, it makes that room look ugly, because this room looks nice now, you know? And so you paint that room, and then, and then you're going like, well, now the cabinets look up. I'm going to paint, you know, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Let me tell you that. Let me tell you, once you start working on your home, you'll never stop until Jesus comes. Literally. Because it's your home, right? You want it to be, you're going to, you, you abide there, you stay there, you dwell there. It's going to be your home. And so what he's praying is that people would understand that Jesus does not want you to live in, in him like you check into a hotel. Like He doesn't want you to just check and be with him for a couple of hours and then move on. He doesn't want you to... Um, Live your life independently, separate from him, and then just once in a while invite him in. Hey, Jesus, you know, I have, my life's really a mess. Can you hang out with me for a day or two, clean up the mess? Then could you go back, can you move out of my life so I can get back to the life I want it to? Now, what Paul's praying here that Christ may dwell in their life is like, he says, I want, it to be, I want you to understand the relationship that God wants you to have that really makes an impact on your life is to Christ to dwell in you like you dwell in your home. God's going to work in you. And what he's saying is that Christ, as Christ d dwells in us, Jesus dwells in us through the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, that God wants our life to be his home. Jesus wants to move into your life, and he's going to start working on it, all of it. He's going to start working on it, just like we work on our homes. Now, he may pick an area of your life to work on first, and when he's done with that, he's going to move to another room, and then he's going to move to another project. Jesus is going to do that because his Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, and you're a complete, all of us are a renovation project. And God's going to continue to work at it. When is it going to stop? When we see God in heaven. That's the only time. And some of you might see this as discouragement. We're like, okay, you know, we dealt with that. And I thought, oh, then Jesus, you know, let me be encouraged. God has your best interest in mind. That's what Paul, Paul's saying here. He's praying, and I'm praying, that you would welcome Jesus into your heart, the center of your being, through faith, and, and that the power of the Holy Spirit would be continually showing you areas and ways that we can become more like him. He wants to do That's the kind of relationship that Paul is asking God for. He's asking God for. Prayer is also, this is the one I had to figure out a word, yearning. Yearning. We don't use that word a lot, do we? Yearn. Yearn for something. You know, it's, prayer is yearning. So prayer is personal, it's relational, it's asking, it's yearning. It gets kind of emotional sometimes. 
uh, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then to know this, love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He's saying, what I, I want you to yearn for, and what I'll yearn for God's people is this, is they would know not just about knowledge of God, but they would know God. Yeah, it's a place to study. There's a place and time to study the Bible, to study and do deep studies. If you know, It's nothing wrong with that. But the issue is, it's beyond knowledge. What he's praying for the people is beyond knowledge. He says, as you experience, as you experience the love of God, that you would grow in your understanding of who he is. It's kind of like this. I've been married to my wife, Vicki, almost 35 years. We'll celebrate 35, 35th anniversary. Um, one, two, three. Three weeks. I know what it is. Okay. August 4th, okay. And uh, I was trying to think how long it was. Somebody said, oops. No, I do know what it is. Okay. And um, August 4th, okay, 35 years. When I first, we, and we, we dated for five years, so we basically, you know, known each other for 40 years almost now, you know. I know she was 12 when we got married. No, she wasn't really. But, uh, um, but the issue is, the issue is, you know, when we first got married, I knew that she loved me. And now I know that she loves me because I've experienced it over and over and over again. I mean, it's not because I did this really deep study on her, you know. It's because I just had the experience of, of being with her for all these years. See, God wants you to experience his love. And for some of you, this means, you know, that you get, it's more than just, than just knowledge, there's emotion involved in it as well. I mean, some of you with, you know, it's like this. Some of you with young kids, if you have little kids, you would really be bummed out if you went home today after church, you go and say, hi, kids, how's it going? And they're going like, whatever. That will come, by the way. I mean, I thought it was funny today. Um, this morning, y'all, you guys weren't here, but maybe some of you dropped off kids. We had uh, 38 uh, senior high kids go to, go to Miracle Camp today, okay? They were here, they left at about 9 o'clock this morning, they were out in the parking lot. I was in my office over here on the corner, and I looked out the window, and I was studying this part right here, and then all of a sudden I look out, and I'm going like, oh my gosh, what a perfect ser- sermon illustration. Because I saw, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, how excited we are when little kids are little. They come up to you and they, and they go like, what do they do? You don't want to do it. They come, daddy, daddy, mommy, mommy. And they get all excited, you know, they do that. They have enthusiasm. You know? Then I looked out the window and I saw this father. And he goes over to his 16, 17-year-old daughter. And he tries to put his arm around her. And she goes like, really, Dad? And I thought about, really, is that the way we treat God sometimes? We just have knowledge of him? Oh, yeah, you're my dad, but big deal. No. Are we like a little kid who's excited to have a relationship with the Father? And they show it and express it in so many ways. See, that's what Paul's talking about here. He said, I hope that you not only ex- experience and know about the love of God, but you experience how long, how wide, how high, how deep is the love of God. And that experience will lead you to, to have joy that wells up within you. 
So do you know the love of God in Christ? If you do, there's a yearning to experience that, to feel and to know it more. So the early Christian church would do this. They would actually do something very, very, uh, a lot of them would. It was very common for them to actually get a cross. And they'd put this cross, and they'd, on the cross they would put those words, wide, long, high, and deep on the cross. And everyone like, what's that? Well, because they saw that the greatest example of God's love and the love that anybody has is, not, is tied in with the cross. What God did for us upon the cross. How wide, how long, how high, how deep is God's love. See, God demonstrates his love for us, it says in the Bible, for this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then it says this also, no greater love is, the, is there anyone that he would lay down his life for his friends. The Bible connects the cross of Jesus to the love of God. And Paul's saying, I want you to experience the love of God. It's not just up here. It needs to be here, which flows out here. Prayer is also expecting. Expecting. It's anticipated. It's, he's going to hear and he's going to answer. Ephesians 3.20. I love this verse. It's a verse that we so often just, we just kind of skim right over. We read it and we're going like, ah, yeah, that's cool. But we don't understand what it means, I think, so often. It says this. Now to him, talking about God, who is able to do immeasurably more. Now some of your translations may say far more than we all ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. What Paul is saying here in this about prayer is this. He's saying that when we pray, we should pray expecting. Whatever we can ask for, guess what? God can do more. Whatever we can think of, God can do more. Not just more, but far more. This is an invitation Paul is saying to ask because the person who can do far more is guess who? Your dad. How convenient is that? That the person who has the resources is your dad, who loves you. But he's a perfect dad, and he knows when to say yes, and he knows when to say no, and he knows when to say later. But he says we need to pray expecting. I mean, how's prayer going for you? What are you praying for? I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I'll tell you, Great Oaks, as I look at the people in our church and I see you, God has done more, far more than I ever asked or imagined. I saw a church when I came here and it was 120 or so people 12 years ago. I was going, God, you know, double this church. Boy, has he done that times six. It's amazing how, what God does when you, when you just trust in him and allow him to work in your life. See, God doesn't want to just do things for you. God also wants to do things in you. It's, he says this, he says, in that verse he says, uh, the, his power that is at work where? Within us. This power of God unleashed through the Holy Spirit is not just God at work in the world, it's God at work in us. Because it's, this is true, this is the thing that excites me more than anything. So it's not so much that we are planting churches, and that's really cool, or, or we're doing it. I, the thing that excites me is how God has changed many of you. How God has changed many of you. Because if you're in Christ, then you're changed. If you're in Christ, you're changing. Your thinking changes, your desires change, your appetites change, your habits will change because the power of God is at work in you. That's what Paul is saying. And I'll tell you one of the most beautiful things in the whole world of mine is seeing the power of God at work in the lives of people. And I want to tell you this, and I want you to know this, that God's power is available to change you if you're yielded and willing 
and available and submissive. And you're joining God in the work that he's doing in you. He can change anything. So I'd ask you, what's he doing in you right now? What's he doing in you right now? So often, you know, you know one of the, the most sold drugs in the world is antidepressants. So many people or so many struggle, struggle with depression and all kinds of issues in their life. And, and, and we, we, we just want to give up sometimes. We just want to give up sometimes. Everybody tries, everybody fails, everybody quits. But plan B is this. Jesus loves you. The Holy Spirit's in you. God's your dad. He's listening. Talk to him. You're not on your own. Lastly is this. Prayer is revealing. Revealing. Ephesians 3.21. Some of us would just skip over this. Be right. Oh, that's that closing, closing words. But this is important. Underline the first four words here. To him be glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The Bible uses this word that speaks of glory in our English Bible about 275 times. So obviously it's an important word, right? I mean, this is an incredibly used word in Scripture, glory. It's a massive mega theme of Scripture, and it means this. It means this. Let me give you a few words it means. It means splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, prominence, preeminence, splendor. I've already said that. Majesty, holiness, purity, worthiness, and superiority of the God of the Bible. So what is he talking about? He says, to him be glory, to God be glory. He's saying, when we pray, something is revealed in our life because of the way we pray. And the, the thing is this, what is the glory of your life? Who do you live for? What do we live for? Why are we here? What are we, going, what are, what are we doing? What's the point of it all? And the point of it all, Paul said, is this, is to reflect God's glory. Folks, our purpose when we pray is not so we can get more glory ourselves. Paul is saying that the purpose is that we reflect the glory of God in a world that's dark. God wants that. And so when we, St. Augustine, the early church father, was right, and he said this, and I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said, once the issue of glory is settled, all the issues are settled. Somebody comes to me and says, you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my marriage. And the question is, it's not what you want to do or he wants to do or she wants to do. What does God want to do? What does God want to do? Am I willing to ask that question? In your business, so often it's, it's not what you do, what, or what they want. What does God want? For the Christian, that has to be the, the, the focus. In your friendships, it's not what do you want or what they want. What does he want out of this, this friendship and this relationship? See, once the issue, glory issue is settled, all the issues are settled. We have a massive glory problem in our world today. The world is addicted to self. It's all about me. It's all about my hurts. It's all about my wants. It's all about my needs, about my income, about my convenience, my reputation. It's all about my, my, my. No, it's not. Not according to God's word. And that's why everybody is so miserable and it's not working anywhere because God said it's about my glory. And I promise you this, when you live for the glory of God to give him honor and praise, you have a joy because that's what we were made for. 
And when you're doing what you were made for, you're joyful. Paul here is single, in a jail cell, been beaten, bruised, everything you can think of, shipwrecked, all these things. And what does he focus upon? God's glory. He's saying, you know, even in this situation, God can get some glory from this. God can be praised from this. I've heard so many people so many times say, well, you know, my circumstances are unique and particularly difficult, and there are a lot of variables. I would simply say, uh, hey, pull out your, you know, your, your hurt card and place it next to Paul's and see who wins. See, there's always an opportunity to glorify God. And even if you're suffering, there's an opportunity to glorify God. Once the glory issue is settled, all the other issues are settled. That's what Paul's saying here as he wraps up this prayer. Because if you ask the question, what will glorify God? You'll end up with a very different answer to most of the questions that you ask in your life. But it'll always be the right answer. So prayer. Prayer. How do you think of prayer? When you pray, do you pray to God as, as your father, your daddy? Or do you have to, are you concerned about saying the right things? I mean, what can you say wrong to a God who loves you? Do you pray to God in such a way that, that God is, you're allowing God to change you? Are you coming before him in a relationship that allows you to see him that way? Do you expect God? Do you expect God to really do something in your life? Or are you simply just praying because you think, oh, that's the right thing to do? See, God, Paul tells us so much here about prayer. And in doing so, he teaches us to pray in a way that many of us do not pray. My prayer is that we would learn to pray like that. Because that's how God wants us to pray. Taught by the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for what, what you're doing in our lives. And I thank you, God, today that we can come to you and because... Prayer is not just simply some kind of rote thing that we do because we've memorized something, that it's really a conversation where we come to you, God, and we ask because you want us to, and we expect because you want us to, and you, and you want us to experience the fullness of your love, how high, how deep, how long, how wide is your love, and in doing so, we have this, it, it helps us to experience you, God, in a way that we've never experienced you before not just with knowledge, but also with something way beyond that. And God, as we pray to you this morning, we also would just thank you so much, God, that we can pray to you as, and talk to you like, like we do somebody who cares for us, because you do. And God, because you're the perfect Father, we're also thankful that when you answer prayers, you always answer them the right way, yes, no, or later. Because God, not, you know, as earthly fathers, we try to do that with our kids, but so, we're so imperfect. As earthly mothers, we do the same thing. And so, God, we, we, we pray that you would just help us to trust in you, God, because, of your, because we know that you're the perfect father who can see all things and know all, know all things. And because of that, God, you can, your answers will always be perfect. Guide us now, God, as we, as we learn to trust in you and, and to build a relationship with you and part of that, God, is by praying and talking to you, God. And then you talked that back to us through your, through your word.
Thank you, God, so much for what Apostle Paul teaches us as he prays for his church, this, this group of people that he had gotten to know over three years of his life that he had felt disconnected with because he could not be there. Help us to pray for one another as a church family because we care. Help us to see each other, not as simply people who come as, and, and, and come and, and get stuff, God, maybe teaching or, or whatever we, we have, but as a group of people who love one another because we're family. And because of that, we're open and honest and caring for one another. Thank you, God, once again for your incredible love for us. Just guide us this morning, God, as we sing our closing song that we would just honor and praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.